Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and salamanders everywhere watching the national news and saying, and you think I'm slippery. It's Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you know what that means? It's Tea with BBP. Live from the Michigan State University campus, it's your host, Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BBP, international superstar, and what, Walter? Uh, I forget. Diva of SLA. You're just jealous, Walter, because you're just a divet. Yeah, I know. And speaking of salamanders, with me in the studio today is not Angelica, because she couldn't be here today, but my own very little, my favorite little newt, uh, Walter Hopkins. <laughs> what? Well, I couldn't think of anything like else to, I had to, had to make a reference back to salamanders, so yeah. <laughs> salamanders, newt. You're my little newt. I'd rather be the Geico Gecko, I think. We can make you the Geico Gecko if you want, but I'd rather you be a little newt. Did you ever see Aliens, that movie? I did not. The little girl, her nickname was Newt. Because I guess because she crawled down to places. But anyway, um, yes, Angelica's not here because I have, um, we're sort of in a, a, a quandary, not a quandary, what's the word? Um, we had a, we had a, a, um, an unf- a very unfortunate situation happen to us this week, to say the least. I mean, I, I don't know what the words are to use, but we had a colleague uh, pass away unexpectedly. Uh, in the French department here, uh, Anna Norris, who was beloved by many people. And um, and so her memorial service today, which is where Angelica is. So we want to, first of all, recognize the passing of Anna Norris and say how, how much we feel for her family and friends and, and the people who have known Anna for so long and worked with her. Uh, it was a very untimely and unexpected um, uh, passing. And so we'd like for this show to be for Anna. And, uh, and again, we send our sympathies to all her family and, and friends. Um, next week, we are in Columbus, Ohio for the um, Ohio Foreign Language Association. So not just yours truly is going to be on the Diva Tour, but Tea with BVP is going to be in Columbus, Ohio at the OFLA, the Ohio Foreign Language uh, Association meeting. On April Fool's Day. On April Fool's Day. So mark your calendars because we will not have a regular show next week on Thursday. Um, because we'll be on the road, we were having our show on Saturday, April 1st at 12 noon Eastern Time. Again, that's Saturday, April 1st at 12 o'clock noon Eastern Time. That will go out in our newsletter on Monday to remind everybody. Um, but go ahead and mark it down now so you don't forget. Um, and it should be a good show because it's going to be live. You won't be able to call in, but but uh, we'll have Mixler. Of course, you can Mixlerize your questions. And so we'll have, we'll have live questions from the audience. Hopefully, it'll be a lively group. Ohioans are pretty, they're pretty lively. Daniel, you're from Ohio. What do you say? Daniel's looking at me through the windows, giving me the thumbs up. We're going to get lots of questions from the people in Ohio, right, Daniel? Let's hope we do. Um, but this, this should be a good group of people there. Um, and Terry's going to be there. And, and who else do we know in Ohio from? The language acquisition, language teaching crowd. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Oh I my gosh! Know. I feel bad. Well, anyway, Lucas, who's the president, who invited me um, and invited to with BVP, we're very happy to be there, Lucas. So we're looking forward to seeing you next week. We have some former grad students in Ohio. Maybe we should contact them and say, "Hey, come out and listen live." I think I just found out Jeff Maloney, our uh, 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 production assistant, is or I forget Jeff's title, but Jeff Maloney's from Ohio. Oh yeah. Jeff, what part of Ohio are you from? He's from Cincinnati. Oh, my, that's not, you're from Kentucky. You're not from Ohio. You're from Kentucky, Jeff. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Don't you cross a river? Don't you cross a river and you're in Kentucky? Isn't that not true? Okay. <laughs> Jeff's like writing on the, on the board there to saying, no way, I'm not from, I'm from Ohio. Yes. So, Jeff, so both Daniel and Jeff are from Ohio. So, there you go. All right. So, Jeff, we expect you to make sure that all your friends from Ohio. Um, come to the conference and ask us questions from the audience. All right. Um, we've got a great topic today, which is going to be different and interesting from before. Um, because the topic is about making output. But it's not going to be about output and its role in acquisition, which I'll get to later. It's actually about some of the mechanics of making output. Because uh, I think that uh, for a lot of people, they don't understand what learners go through in making output. It's like voodoo. 
And so hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about that. So um, we will introduce that topic in a little bit. Remember that during the show, um, there is the SLA challenge question. I'm going to give you the question in a few minutes. And the first person to make it to the phone, uh, and Jen is manning the phone today, or personing the phones, I should say, um, with the answer wins a prize. And Walter, look at the prize. Look at the prize again. What is this? Ooh, Dust Storms, Stories from Lubbock. Yes, so my book collection of short stories, I'm giving these away for next couple of weeks. Um, So if you call in and answer the SLA Challenge uh, question correctly, you'll get a signed copy of my um, short stories, Dust Storm, Stories from Lubbock, Texas. Very interesting. Um, And, of course, we also have the Diva Challenge question. I'll read that question at some point, and you'll have time to call in with the right answer and win a prize. And, Walter, what's, what's the prize for... Answering the diva question correctly? Uh, do I get multiple guesses? No, you just look at what I'm holding up in my hand here. <laughs> Dust storm. Dust storm. Stories so, yes. from Lubbock. <laughs> so whether you answer the SLA challenge question, the diva challenge question correctly, you'll get a copy, a signed copy of my absolutely wonderful collection of short stories called Dust Storm. Do you think they really want you to sign it? Yeah, of course they do. That's, don't you want an author to sign a book? I'm not going to send it to somebody without putting something in there. Thanks for listening to the show. Or or, or maybe I'll sign it. See what I have to work with? <laughs> maybe that's what I'm going to put in there. Okay. Um, and because Angelica's not here this week, we do not have a quote of the week. Although I do have something I'd like to read in lieu of Angelica's quote of the week. But we have Walter's read coming up later. The number to reach us at is 517 884 4321. Again, that's 517 884 4321. Again, Jen is on the phone lines waiting for your call. Um, so please call in with your questions. Uh, Walter actually will be looking at Mixler today, not Angelica. So um, he will be seeing what issues look there. I will be poking my head around in the T with BVP at gmail.com to see what questions have come up in email. Because um, we're a little shorthanded today, because actually Dustin's out and Luca's gone and Angelica's gone. Walter and I and Daniel's like we're like one arm paper hangers here. I tell you, That's, <laughs> it's just it's just hard. So anyway, so remember we're a call and talk show, so we want you to call in, and if you call in, we can talk about Angelica behind her back. Um, just kidding. Uh, remember the phone number is Walter five one seven eight eight four four three. Two one. Walter, you do that so well. I love saying that. You do that. You know, you do phone numbers really well. Yeah. Should I try it again? You could be like, yeah. You could be do one of those commercials on TV where you have to read the phone number. I know. I've always thought, you know, I want to be one of those people who does those commercials or you know the be the voice at the airport. Caution: You are now reaching the end of the walkway. Or thank you for flying. JetBlue Air. I would I love <laughs> for you to replace Siri on my phone. Well, there you go. See, I should. I be the next would Siri. rather hear Walter talking to me than Siri. My gosh, who found that woman anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I think you can change your voice. Actually, I've heard that anyway. I don't have an iPhone, so I don't know. Can I just say one? You don't thing? have an iPhone. I don't have an iPhone. Not you that know this is that a, not this is an Apple commercial going on, but <laughs> anyway, what were you going to say, Walter? Before I'm going to say back? that you know you just announced that I'm looking at Mixler today and not Angelica. So I need to do a negative shout out to Darren because he says you're just stuck with Walter. Ish, ugh. Oh, that's not very nice, Darren. You know, Darren. Loves I'm reading luggage. Mixler today, Darren. So you better be kind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Darren. He'll cut you off. You can you can ask any question <laughs> one on there, and Walter's going to skip you for somebody else. Or he might he might attribute a question to you that you don't want attributed to you. So be careful. All right. Okay, so maybe we should get into the topic. This topic is a little, this is a little wonky. Is that the word I want, wonky? Wonky, like Willy Wonka? No, not like Willy Wonka. Wonky is when, maybe wonky is not the word. When You, you know when someone call, is called a policy wonk in Washington, D.C.? It means they know all the nuts and bolts and, and, and they really know those things backwards and forwards. Um, that's the kind of wonky I mean. I don't mean wonky in a weird way. I mean wonky in the sense that there's a lot of meat here. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into it because um, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing um, to talk about. But it's worth talking about. We've never, ever talked about this in the show that I know of. Okay, so we're, we're focused on output this week. But again, not the role of output and acquisition. We're not debating that. We're not talking about interaction or anything like that. Instead, we're talking about how, how output itself develops over time. 
And I have maintained, I've actually written about this. I have a couple publications on this. If you'd like to know what those are, let me know. Uh, but I have maintained for some time that the acquisition of language, getting language in your head, and the acquisition of skill require independent procedures. They are independent of each other, even if they are both anchored in the notion of communication. Okay, so in other words, we've talked about language acquisition happening through input. Input's a part of communication. We've talked about output being a part of communication's production, and skill is part of communication. But interestingly, um, from everything I gather in the research, these are semi-independent processes. Um, they overlap in the sense that they're tied to communication, but the procedures involved are independent. So how you get language in your head is different from how you actually are able to to make language in output. Um, okay. Um, now, so language is acquired through input and skill is acquired by actually doing something, right? But it's become increasingly clear through the research over the years that you can't just practice skill, especially output. There is some very suggestive evidence, um, and in a theory we're going to get to in a minute, that the ability to make output is actually itself constrained, just like language acquisition. So, Walter, your question is what? How is it constrained? Yes, exactly. How is output constrained over time? Well, what we're going to dapple with in, in the next couple of minutes is what's called processability theory. So, hang on with me, people, because this is where it gets hairy. This is the want. This is the want stuff coming in. Oh, Walter, don't do that to me, please. Oh, sorry. sorry. Do you want to do this? <laughs> no, I think I'll pass. Okay. All right. Um, okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about what's called processability theory, which is the only theory out there that really actually talks about how output is developed over time. Now, um, output here we're referring to is, is the ability to string words together in real time to communicate meaning, right? So the ability to string words together and to use grammar to do that. And what the theory says is that this ability is developmentally constrained. So what, uh, what processability theory says is that learners acquire a set of output processing procedures in a hierarchically ordered manner over time. So let me repeat that. That's a big chunk. Learners acquire a set of output processing procedures in a hierarchically ordered manner over time. Now, these output processing procedures are related to the idea of grammatical exchange of information between two elements in a sentence. So let me give you an example of what that means. In a language like Spanish, for example, we have to do adjective agreement, right, Walter? So give me an example of adjective agreement with, um, with the word casa, which means house. Casa roja. Casa roja, so red house. So right there, there's grammatical information being exchanged between a noun and an adjective. And what Walter just gave is an example of the easiest um, uh, grammatical exchange that can happen, um, which is exchange of grammatical information within a phrase. That's called a noun phrase. Casa roja. La casa roja is a noun phrase. And so that's the easiest kind of grammatical information to exchange. Um, another example would be uh, something a little bit more difficult, would be exchanging grammatical information between elements across phase boundaries but in a sentence. So if we take Walter's example and I say uh, the house is red, Walter, I would say la casa es roja. roja. So there, according to the theory, that's a little bit more difficult to do because now you have to change the, exchange the grammatical information from the noun phrase across the sentence into the verb phrase because that, that adjective roja is contained in the verb phrase with the verb is, right? So la casa es roja. And so according to the theory, that's developmentally more difficult. Okay. The most difficult thing to do in processability theory is exchanging information, grammatical information, across a clause boundary. Okay? Um, and there's not a good example to give for that for something like adjective in Spanish, but um, my best example is I love working with Spanish because it's one of my native languages, but so something like the subjunctive in Spanish is exchanging grammatical information across a clause boundary because you have a trigger in the in one sentence like I uh, I want or I doubt or something and then you have that which signals a clause boundary and then you have something happening in the next clause which is dependent on what happened in the first clause so I doubt 
that and then the verb in the next clause has to be in the subjunctive, right? Um, so that's the developmentally most difficult thing. And according to processability theory, there are like seven of these, six or seven of these procedures um, going from the easiest to the most difficult, the clause procedure being the most difficult. And so what the theory says is that output, learning to make output is constrained because you have to get these procedures in an ordered way over time. You can't skip them, okay? Um, so one of the outcomes of processability theory is that you can't get learners to produce and practice something they are not developmentally ready for. Okay, so I'm not going to um, talk anymore about that because I know Walter has a read of the week. I think he's going to talk about that a little bit. But um, so just to make just to make this clear, we're talking about learners being able to string stuff together, right? Processability theory is not about fluency or skill. It precedes fluency or skill, right? So what processability theory says is that you have to be able to you, these procedures have to emerge in your output before you can actually develop the skill with them, okay? So you can't practice them because they have to emerge first. And there's all these criteria for what emergence means and so on. We're not going to get technical here on that because we don't want to get too much detail. But the whole idea here is that output itself is development constrained. Just like language in your head is development constrained, producing output is development constrained independently of how language grows in your head. So the reason I thought this topic was good this week, Walter, is because we got a, we're talking about a double whammy for, for learners. Getting language in your head is constrained, and then producing output is constrained um, by, by inherently something inherent about, uh, about the way language is structured and so on. So anyway, so if you want to get on this topic or ask anything else related to this topic or something different, that's fine. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, that's 517-884-4321. So really what you're saying is that learning a language is just way too hard. We shouldn't even try because oh, it's I'm too constrained in the I People learn languages the all the time. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that um, there are certain things you just can't work around, um, that they're just natural processes, and learners have to go through them. That's what I'm saying. Um, okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give the SLA challenge question now and because it's related to our topic. And then we'll look at Mixler. We'll see if anybody's calling us calling in, and we'll look at email. So here's the SLA challenge question. Ready? I'm ready. Good. Manfred Pienemann is the name most associated with what is called processability theory and most associated with constraints on making output. What country is Manfred Pienemann from? That's my question. Again, Manfred Pienemann is the name most associated with what is called processability theory and the constraints uh, on making output. So what country is Manfred from? Good question. We need to know this. Um, okay, so uh, if you've got the answer to that question, call in and you're going to get a copy of what, Walter? The Storm. Stories from Lubbock. By yours truly, Bill Van Patten. Okay, so. And he gets to sign it for you. Too. Yeah, I get to sign it for you if you want. But Walter thinks maybe I shouldn't sign it, so I don't know. It's up to you. When you call in, you can, you can <laughs> tell me whether you want it signed or not. <laughs> I'm sure they want it signed. God, you know, sometimes, Walter, wish your output were constrained. You know that? I'll constrain my output. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, I love you more than my luggage. I've never heard you say that before, though. I know. I know. You are my little newt, Walter. Okay. <laughs> hey, look. That's an upgrade from volleyball, so remember that. Yeah. Right. Last, I think it was the last time that it was just the two of you, two of us here that we... Uh, that's that how the volleyball. That. I felt like yeah. I was talking about being like the castaway. And I said, Angelica, come back. All I have is this volleyball to talk to. And that's how that all started. Oh, well. Well, I have a quick question here from Nina on Mixler. She says, Does this have anything in common with Krashen's order of acquisition? It does not. Um, the um, Although it, it does not, it's not the same thing. It's not. But processability theory can explain not or orders of acquisition have to do with accuracy over time on something. Um, processability theory is about how these procedures emerge. But they are but processability theory can predict in a certain way um, accuracy orders in your output. Um, but they're not the same. Um, so for example, um, the easiest procedure 
in one of the easiest procedures in process of theory is when you pull something out of your head, a, a, a verb form or something, and it doesn't have to agree with anything. You just stick something on it. So like ing on English to express progressive, like talking, walking, and so on. That doesn't have to – there's no grammatical information that exchange with that. So you just pull that out of your head and the ing is on and that's, that's – and, that, and Monfred would predict that that's, that comes out early compared to something like third person s, which will come out much later because third person s requires what? Agreement between a noun and a verb. So the grammatical information has to cross from the noun phrase to the verb phrase. Okay, and so it does have some predictability when it comes to acquisition orders, but um, but it was developed independently of those things. Um, it was actually uh, developed to um, Monfred worked on this because he was interested in the acquisition of word order in, in um, various languages, and so um, it, it was more about developmental sequences in some ways. But anyway, so that was a good question, Nina. Thank you. I could take a sip of water here. Take it for a minute, Walter. All right. Well, I could talk a little okay, bit. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, never mind. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You were going to say something? Was something oh, I was just going to say that uh, looks like Luca put out a question on Twitter. Yes. And it said, answer in one tweet. How does output develop? Oh, okay. Want to hear some answers? Sure. All right. Let's hear it. Uh, Carly says, lots and lots and lots of input builds a mental representation over time. Yes, it does. But here's the issue. You've got to tap that mental representation and string words together. How does that develop? That's the issue. Mm -hmm. That's what Manfred's talking about. Not talking about getting language in your head through input. He's talking about how you tap whatever's in your head and string words together over time. What else? And Michelle says, with lots of time and comprehensible input, you can't rush proficiency. She says, uh, Longinus says... Output starts developing as babies begin babbling and mimicking the phonemes in their environment. And then he says also, I guess everything after that is just more advanced babbling. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I'm not going to comment on that one. So You won't comment? Okay. Nope. Um, let's see. Christopher says output develops by engaging in the expression of meaning in many varied contexts. It cannot be drilled. And then he hashtags BVP in TLE 2014. Uh, TLE. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yep. I did write that. So okay. anyway, yeah, those are a bunch of them. Yeah, there. I guess. I get, Yeah, I think everybody's right on there. I don't disagree with anything so far. It's just that what we want people to understand is it's – it's they make it sound like voodoo, like magic. You just throw lots of input and output develops. That is true. There's nothing false about that. But what we want to get at here is to get people to understand that the ability to make output over time itself is constrained. So even though you're throwing input at them so they can develop a system in their head, the ability to tap that system and use it in real time has its own set of constraints different from getting language in your head. Okay, we got a call coming in. Uh, let's see here. We got Carly on the line. Is Carly on the line? Yeah, hi. Hey, Carly, Carly where are you calling from? I'm calling from East Lansing. Oh, my gosh. Probably someone we know, Walter, so don't say anything bad. I think I just read it's a question from, from inside Carly. The house. Constrain, constrain your output, Walter. Don't say anything bad about Carly or anything <laughs> I bad about East Lansing. anything. Of course not. So how's the weather in East, it, 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 how's the weather in East Lansing today, Carly? <laughs> well, from inside, it looks beautiful, but I hear it's bitter cold outside, yeah, so I'm yeah, going to stay in here. Outside. All right, Carly. So you're calling. Do you have a question or are you, here, are you answering the uh, SLA challenge question? I think I know the answer to the SLA challenge question. Okay, well, let me repeat that for everybody, and then I will let you answer. So here we go. Manfred Peenemann is the name most associated with what is called processability theory and the constraints on making output. What country is Manfred from? And your answer, Carly, is? Is he from Deutschland? Deutschland. He's from Germany. He's from Germany. Yes, he is. Ding, 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 ding. Carly wins a book. Yay, Yay, Carly. Yes, Monfred. And of course I want it signed. Of course. Well, I'll sign it for you, Carly. Uh, yeah, so Monfred actually, he's, the reason that I thought it was a good question is Monfred's had appointments in Australia and the UK as well as Germany. And so a lot of people don't know where he's from. Um, but he is from Germany. And he did a lot of work with uh, Harold Claussen and Clyde Perdue and other people in the 80s on all the guest workers in Germany, all the immigrants in Germany learning mm -hmm. German. And so um, he's known for that and, and contributed a lot to understanding how it is that immigrants were acquiring German as a second language in Germany. 
Anyway, yeah. so yeah, cool. All right, Carly. Um, Hi, do you have a question or comment for us? Otherwise, I will um, get this book signed and off to you at some point. I guess we probably um, don't need your address. Maybe we could, uh, you know, even no, drop it off. No, I think we can meet up. Yeah. Okay, well, all right then. All right, Carly. All right, just about that audience. Just people in the audience listening. This was not a setup deal. This is not. There's nothing shenanigans going on. <laughs> people here in East Lansing are free to call. They're, I'm glad they're listening to the show. That's great. It wasn't a setup so that Carly could just get a book because I know Carly. I could just hand her a book if I wanted to. So, all right. Okay, yeah. Carly. Well, we'll make sure this book gets right. to you. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Bye. all right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, gosh. Um, okay. Um, so where's Manfred Pienemann now? He's back in Germany. Um, I Is he at Potsdam? I've heard. No, where is he? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't know where he is right now. We'd, we'd have to, like, Googleize him and see. Wow. Did I just stump you with a question? Say what? <laughs> <laughs> I I I thought you knew everything, Bill. So I'm I'm just really surprised you didn't know where he is. So let's. Yeah, well, I don't know the answer either. So don't worry. I really don't look at me like that. Then, jeez, Mary and Joseph. My gosh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. Okay. Um, well, we got that question out of the way. Let me go ahead and give the diva challenge question now, and then I will will take either a, another call if there's a call coming in, or um, we will go to email or Mixler. Okay. Diva challenge question. You ready, Walter? I'm ready. Is it an easy one? Yes, it is. Even for me? It's completely unrelated to processability and output making, though. Okay. okay. What two big screen divas, you know what big screen means? Yes. Okay. Wait, two of them? Yeah. What two big screen divas are Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lang playing on the phenomenal new series Feud on FX? So you're looking for their characters' names? Yep. Oh. What two big screen divas are Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lang playing on the phenomenal new series Feud on FX? Call in with your answer, and you win a book. Feud right. on FX. Yes. All right. Okay. So let's take some questions now from, let's see, how about if I go to, should I look at the email questions? Sure. Okay. We have, actually, this is not related to what we're talking about. Uh, today per se, but this is from Chris, who says he actually asked this question before, but somehow uh, it got dropped or we didn't get to it or something. So he's asking again. Um, uh, in one of his books, BVP writes something like, I was like when they go something like, you should quote, that way you get it absolutely correct. Just kidding. Okay, in one of his books, BVP writes something like, to the extent that teachers are asking learners to speak the language they are learning as a way to acquire that language, they're putting the cart before the horse, right? So in other words, you, you, don't, you don't learn language by, by forcing people to speak it. You know, again, you get language in your head through input and then output develops over time. Um, and again, as we're talking about today, it's constrained itself. Okay, so he says, in a traditional communicative classroom, learner on learner interaction is at the forefront. Again, that's an extreme communicative class. There are different kinds of communicative classes, and I object to saying traditional communicative class because in my communicative class, that's not necessarily the case. Okay, we, we had a show on what communicative classes are, and my new book is all about the fact that Communicative classes, communicative is a very broad term to mean different things, but I understand what Chris is saying. So, in a traditional communicative classroom, learn on learner interactions at the forefront, uh, communicative pair activities, and so on. But there is a problem. Learners inevitably make what a teacher, not an SLA researcher, would call errors when they produce a new language. These errors in turn inevitably become flawed input for other learners. Um, that's an assumption, not, it's not researched, but go ahead. Uh, for example, you're teaching Spanish and say gustar, uh, which is a verb in Spanish that doesn't mean like, but we don't have a verb in Spanish to mean like. Um, and activities in the student's life, I've, he's, uh, he's cut a sentence off here. So after a bunch of modeling, you ask the students, okay, find out what people around you like to do. And off they go, maybe even in Spanish if you're lucky, and you will invariably hear exchanges like this. Tu gusta Coca-Cola, which should be te gusta Coca-Cola, and then si gusto Coca-Cola, and si me gusta Coca-Cola. Now, given that this, uh, he says, what do you advise teachers to do to minimize what Terry Waltz and Krashen have called the McDonald's of language teaching? What is the role of interaction in the SL classroom? We've talked, we've talked about interaction before. I do not define interaction necessarily as student, student speaking. 
eye-to-find interaction as students acknowledging comprehension in some way. It can be speaking, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and so I, I think that the issue here with this is, again, um, there are ways to get students to do things in class without having this, this kind of thing. But again, I, I'm not so sure that learner, learner output is input for other students. I don't necessarily think that's the case. There is no research on this. Um, and so, um, you know, if, if there is, somebody send it to me. But I, I don't think there is research on this. Um, you got to remember the teacher is seen as the power center of the classroom and as the prestige person for language, quote unquote, imitation, if you want to call it imitation, even though we know language is not learned imitation. So the, the kind of Spanish or French or German you want to speak is what the teacher speaks, not what other students speak. Um, and so it's not clear to me that, that, that this is, uh, that student output is input for other students. I mean, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Um, but again, let's just make sure that interaction doesn't have to be student output in the creative sense. It could be um, interaction could be um, structured input. It could be students acknowledging comprehension some way. It could be all kinds of things that don't that isn't pair work. Um, all right. Okay. So Chris, I hope that answered your question. Sorry, it took so long to get to it, but there you go. Anything on Mixler, Walter? There is something on Mixler. What is it? This is another question from Nina. She's really interacting with you today, and she wants to know, what exactly do you mean by constrained or constraints in layman's terms? This is complicated stuff, she says. Constraint simply means that something keeps you from doing something. So in other words, if you're at, if you're at the stage where all you can do is exchange grammatical information in the noun phrase... Um, uh, Nina, for example, La Casa Blanca or La Casa Roja for the White House. If you're at that stage, that you are constrained, you are at that point in time, you are constrained from from doing grammatical information exchange. That's more complicated than that. So, in other words, it would be it would be difficult, if not impossible, for you to be doing um, something that goes across clauses. You know, to exchange grammatical information across clauses because you're not there yet developmentally. So, another, so that's what we mean by constraints. Something is keeping you from doing something um, in your output. And, and Monfit has realized these in terms of what he calls output processing procedures. That's where the term processability theory comes from, from output processing to contrast with input processing, for example. Um, so output processing says that, that at various stages of your development, you are constrained from doing particular things, and you have to get to a point where you're ready to do the next thing. And you can only do the next thing. You can't do, you can't do anything that's three stages away. You're always constrained to go to the next stage and only the next stage. You can't jump stages and go across two, three, four stages. Just not going to happen. So that's what we mean by constrained. That that I you think I answered that well? I think you answered it. Well, Nina will let us know. She'll write back and let us know. Nina, if that doesn't make sense, you let me know, and I will be sure to let the the jefe know here. So, I've got another a comment here from Lance. He says the biggest issue in K to twelve teaching is that. What you describe is perceived as a teacher-centered classroom, which is totally unacceptable in current models. So any thoughts on that? Um, there's a difference between a teacher-centered classroom and a teacher-led classroom. What you all need to do is take control of the discourse and start using different things. A teacher-led classroom is fine. That's different from a teacher-centered classroom. Um, and the problem is these are these are terms, I'll say this once again, these are terms imported from education. Language acquisition in classrooms is different from learning other subject matter. We have to treat language as a different kind of subject matter, and the models and terms used in other educational circles do not necessarily apply. So let's start talking about teacher-led activities and teacher-led discussion and teacher-led uh, uh, tasks and so on as opposed to teacher-centered. Uh, there's a big difference. Um, and we need classrooms, particularly in early stages, that are teacher-led um, because nobody would ever say that a child at the age of one is engaged in parent-centered anything. It's not parent-centered. It's parent-led. Um, so anyway. That's my answer to that. Well, I think I think you've had this conversation before. You've actually used the example that 
you know, when when a parent is talking to a child who's in the in the process of learning language, uh, that conversation is all centered around the child, yeah. and uh, and so it is child centered, right? It's uh, it's centered around the child. The parent ha- tends to be the one doing the majority of the talking, but that's because the parent's trying to negotiate meaning and trying right. to figure out what it is that the child's trying to communicate. Think so. about it this way. A teacher-led discussion of a stu- student-centered topic or a student-centered theme. That's what we're talking about, basically, um, in the kinds of classrooms I advocate. Um, and so that's, that's teach, it's, as opposed to a teacher-centered topic um, or a uh, what's worse than I think teacher centeredness is a book centered classroom. That's a problem. Agreed. So anyway, okay, good comment, Lance. Thank you for bringing that. We all can always count on Lance for bringing something up. And they say thank you, but we wish more administrators saw it that way. Well, that's your job. That's your job to make the argument. That's what. That's. I'm sorry, but you have to do that. So I'm going to urge you to do that. Okay. Um, Okay, here we have an interesting question on email that I'm going to go ahead and read. Um, this question comes from Catherine. And it says, my question is about class placement. She teaches at a small middle school. She says, for about four years, we have been able to divide our grade seven and eight Spanish sections by proficiency level, more or less, she says, with one class catering to students at about the intermediate level and one catering to new students and novices. My colleague and I feel that this is in the best interest of the students and has allowed our novice or new students the time and space to progress at their own pace and the intermediate students and the challenges needed to continue their progress. Our administration is wanting us to give up the system as our perspective is that leveling classes by any academic standard is demoralizing to students and robs them of positive and collaborative learning experiences with a peer group of diverse strengths. What are your thoughts? Is it more beneficial for students to be grouped by proficiency in this type of system? If so, what research could you recommend that might back up that point of view? First of all, no, there's no research to talk about what you're talking about. And I think, again, this is where administrators are using words that you guys are talking past each other. Proficiency ability is not an academic standard. And I, 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 they are correct that you don't want to, like, for example, use um, academic standards like you're an A student and you're a B student and we're going to put you in different classes. No, that's not what we want to do. But language ability is not reflective of anything academic, again, because language is different. So this is the argument you have to make and, and tell administrators. Now, with that said, you can group any way you want because there are pros and cons. Again, I don't think there's a research on Actually, I know of one research, but it's about, it's about interaction um, or pair work. Um, and that research found that grouping, there's one research, I, I can't even remember, it came out in the 80s, I think, um, where they grouped people by whether they were at the same level of proficiency or they were at differential levels of proficiency. And what they found was that actually the differential levels of proficiency was better. <coughs> Excuse me. Because for several reasons, one of which the students at the lower level got, they got interaction and input from the higher level student um, that was more beneficial for them than, than working with someone at their own level. And the other thing I found, I think if I recall correctly, was that for the more advanced student, there was an affective component. where They felt empowered um, as a more advanced learner to, to help um, the less advanced person during these interchanges. Okay, these were like tasks, prayer work tasks and so on. Um, and again, that was back in the 80s. I don't remember exactly what the tasks were and so on. And it was one study. And, and if my knowledge has never been replicated, I could be wrong, at least not in the world language context. Maybe there's some ESL work on this, but I don't know of any. So, um, but again, I mean, there's reasons for grouping people by level and group or by proficiency level and grouping people differentially. I mean, you can make an argument for either one, but it's not an academic argument. The administrators are wrong by using, this is not an academic standard we're talking about. It's about ability and communication. Okay, so the ability to communicate and communicate with each other, that's what you have to focus on. Um, so, right. Uh, what else, Walter? What do we got going on there? Wow, it is. Uh, I've got a few things here. Um, a lot of people are liking your your distinction between teacher led and teacher centered. 
And Keith says he likes that he likes teacher led because it implies student centered. Um, it doesn't even have to imply. You can actually say just like I no. just like I said, a teacher led, student centered topic. I, I I think we ought to put that out there. Let's hash. Oh, that's too long to hashtag. But that's that's a teacher led, student centered topic or a teacher led, student centered curriculum. Because I also think students in classroom are learners. And if you are acquisition-oriented and you are trying to help them acquire language the way we talk about with lots of input, focus on meaning, focus on communication, so on, you are developing a learner-centered curriculum. That curriculum is not about the knowledge they're supposed to get. It's not about a test they're supposed to take. It's not about some standard. It's about the learner. You are putting the learner at the center of the curriculum by doing that. But it's a teacher-led learner-centered mm-hmm. curriculum. So let's do it. Let's start talking about that, people. Preach I, it. Preach it. The devil made me do it. <laughs> Walter, Walter and I were listening to Flip Wilson earlier. If y'all out there are my age or a little bit younger, you'll remember Flip Wilson was a famous comedian in the 70s and 80s um, who did this one routine about the preacher's wife who bought the dress, the third dress that week, and the preacher was all upset. And she says, I don't want to buy no dress. The devil made me buy this dress. Anyway, so it's I'd never heard of Flip Wilson, and, and Bill was... I was rolling. It makes me laugh. Okay. <laughs> He, he brought me along and, and, and introduced me to Flip. Well, Walter, m- one of my jobs in life is to get you up on pop culture. Okay, pop culture from whether, the 70s and 80s? What? Well, why not? <laughs> you think pop culture right now just comes out of nowhere? Everything's organic and comes as a past, as a present, and a future, right? So people build on each other. Things, you know, right? Look, when bell bottoms come back again, I'm going to remind you, they were in the 70s. They already did come back. Uh, yeah, and they're going to come back again. You, they came back in the 90s. They're going to come. Watch. Just watch. Probably not because I said it on the air. They're going to be back next year. You watch. That's right. Everyone is listening to you for fashion advice. That's There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Bell bottoms. Go out and buy them. Except now they're going to be called bill bottoms. <laughs> bill bottoms. All right. Oh. Okay. I have a question here in email. Should I address this question? This is from Ryan. Ryan likes to write to us and talk to us. That's great. Um, Ryan asked the following questions, unrelated to the topic today, but, but it's a good question. Ryan says, does noticing things from the input or in the input play a role in the output? At least consciously, when I have tried to form words that I don't know in Spanish that would end with T-Y in English, for example, reality, veracity, specialty, etc., I noticed that those words would end in D-A-D, dad in Spanish, Right. I would then use that ending or, uh, for forming other words in Spanish that in English end in T-Y. Um, I can't answer that question, Ryan, because I I'm not a big believer in noticing as, as a major factor in language acquisition. It's a minor factor at best. And, you, and, and maybe I could answer it this way. There are some things you could notice consciously in the input, but few that would really help in any long run. Most things happen outside of your awareness in language. Um, again, um, language is a very complex phenomenon. It, 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 you, the example you cite is a surface-level feature of language, not one of the abstract properties of language, although there are some aspect properties to it, abstract properties to it. Um, so um, you could notice easy surface things, and whether or not that helps you in the long run, it just depends. Uh, again, language is very complex. It's not we can't reduce it to some simple f- formula. Like you can notice things, and it'll be in your output. No, you can notice maybe some things, and it'll show up in your output. Maybe. Anyway, so that was a good question from Ryan. Ryan asks good questions. That's good. Okie dokies. We need some callers. Call in, everybody. I know. Nobody wants that. Five one seven. Do I have to do that Diva Challenge? Four, three, this two, is one. the easiest Diva Challenge question. You can just Googleize this. Did you Googleize it already? I Googleized it. So you know the answer now? Well, and some people actually put the answers on Mixler. So if you well, just want to look back on Mixler, they're to there. To heck with so. them if they're not going to call any. Okay. Call so in. I'm gonna I'm gonna call do the in. I'm gonna do the uh, question one more time. Here you go. Diva Challenge question. What two big screen divas are Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange playing in the phenomenal new series Feud on FX? Great series, by the way. I'm hooked. It is my Downton Abbey. You know, Did I never, you watch Downton I never, Abbey? I did not ever watch a, a single episode of Downton Abbey. 
I did not either. Oh, didn't I? So anyway, um, okay. So where are we? I just lost. Oh, I just clicked on something on my screen. Oh, there it's back now. Okay. Well, I've got a a, a post here from Coxley, I guess. Uh, at least that's their their name here on Mixler. It says the I like the distinction. Our country is working, or sorry, our county is working largely with project based learning. This still needs to be led by teachers rather than the model of students on their own. If left at too early a stage, I find input lacks and translating becomes the crutch. So there you have it, a comment from Cox. Wait, 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 say that again. Could you repeat that comment? Sure. It says this, uh, so talking about project-based learning is what their county happens to be moving toward. Um, she says, or he says, I don't know, he or she says, this still needs to be led by teachers rather than the model of students on their own. If left at too early a stage, I find input lacks lacks in this project-based learning, and translating becomes the crutch. So, there's. I'm I'm not sure what Coxley's saying there, but project-based learning is another one of those things imported from education um, to languages, and that's that's unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I, I say unfortunately because I think there are a number of concepts from education that are imported wholesale into language classes that need to be questioned. So I prefer, at least at the lower levels, I prefer tasks to projects. I make a distinction in my book, by the way, Walter, between tasks and projects. Your new book? Did you know that? Or your book that... Uh... The book that's coming out in July. Oh. In the chapter on tasks, I have a little section there on project-based learning and showing how that's different from task-oriented learning and task-based learning in language classes. <clears throat> I mean, project-based learning would be good for something who people are already advanced and have some language. Sure. That's actually probably interesting, but not for lower level languages. It doesn't work. Um, unless, again, you have a completely teacher led project that's completely input based. Um, and I, I'm having a hard time visualizing that. But it doesn't mean it can't happen. So, all right, let's see here. Uh, do I have another email question here? I do. We had a bunch that came in at the same time. Um, uh, let's see here. Let's see here. Oh, we got a call coming in. I can't quite tell what it's coming up on there. Let's see here. Oh, I think we have a call. Okay, we. We're going to wait on that call because Jen is there. There's posting on the board right now, and it's not clear what's going on with that call. So we're going to hold off on that for a second while we look at. Um, Nina wants to know how she can get your new book. It's not out yet, but. Oh yeah, it's good. Uh, Actful. It's published by Actful, so Actful will publicize it. Of course, it'll be available. Um, you can buy it this summer through Actful, maybe Amazon.com. I don't know how Actful markets these things. They're going to feature it, I hope, in November at the convention. So, And they also, um, Nina, I don't know where you're from, if you go to a regional conference, but Actful goes, always has a booth at all the regional conferences, and they sell um, their products and materials and, and books and things. So you can also look at it there. So, um, and it's going to be called Principles of Contemporary Well, I don't language. know. We should have a contest for this. I'm... I'm, I've called it right. There's a boxed feature in it called While We're on the Topic. And I, I, I go off on a little tangent because it's a very chatty book. It's not a scholar. It's a really fun book. I really loved writing it. And I loved working with the people. Uh, Lisa and Meg at Actful have been great working with me on this book. But this little feature called While We're on the Topic. And so I want to call the book While We're on the Topic dot, 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 principles of contemporary language teaching. I kind of like that. Wouldn't you love to pick up a book called While We're on the Topic? Dot, I dot, know. dot. Oh, Walter. <laughs> Constrain your output, Walter. Constrain yourself. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. There was a question here about um, – uh, oh, yeah. This is a good one. Um, this is a question from some Spanish teachers, Ruth and Margot and Mary Ann and Karen or Corinne, uh, Mandy, uh, Jeannie, Marietta. Sounds like the whole department is sending this question in. Um, and also there are uh, amazing students, Francis um, – uh, oh, and they're amazing students at the Francis um, this School in Massachusetts. Okay. She says, as a department instructing Spanish through immersion methods, partic- uh, specifically the methodology of organic world language, uh, we often find ourselves debating length of discourse as defined by actful standards. In particular, we struggle to come to consensus on the definition of short phrases 
and discrete sentences. Can you speak specifically to the level of accuracy related to these lengths of discourse and how accuracy and text type interact and as a result does or does not determine our classification of a student in the novice and intermediate proficiency ranges? Actually, I cannot speak to that. Um, because it's a great question. but It's a great question. <laughs> and actually, that would be one I would submit to ACTFL to see if they could help with that. Um, these short phrases and discrete sentences, um, this again is when you try to take an assessment method, when you go through OPI training, for example, which is what this is about, that the standards are based on. When you go through IP, IPI, you develop a sense of what these are. Um, so I don't know if you've gone through OPI training or not, but if you go through oral proficiency interview training, you get a sense of what these things are and what it means to work with short phrases as opposed to discrete sentences, as opposed to connected discourse and so on. You know, and what makes a novice different from an intermediate, what makes a novice high different from an intermediate mid, for example, you you, you get a sense of all these things. Because you're going through training, right, Walter? So yes, that's, you're getting a sense of all this stuff, right? Um, so there, it's difficult to quantify and define um, and say this is an example and this is an example. You just get a feel for it. Um, so uh, this is probably why you're debating it because there's no actual definition or construct out there to tell you what these things are. So sorry about that. Um, that was actually came Ruth is the one who posted that for her group. So sorry, Ruth. I ain't got no answer for you on that. So. Well, we had a caller, and uh, he apparently had a bit of difficulty and so um, had a rough connection. So uh, he wanted to answer the Diva Challenge question. And so he has put his answer on Mixler for us because there was a rough connection. And where the question is, will you accept the Mixler answer for our caller of the Diva question, Bill? Oh, because he can't call in? Well, if nobody's can't. calling in, we're going to take it. Right, kids? I'm looking at the window there. Everybody's going, nah, yin, yeah. So, all right. So is it is it out there? It's out there. This is Doo-Doo. And he's trying, to, he's trying to call in. So let me do the question again, and then we'll see what Doo-Doo says. Okay, so um, what two big screen divas are Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange playing? By the way, both Oscar, nominee, uh, Oscar winners. How many Oscars does Susan Sarandon have? <laughs> I haven't the slightest One. clue. Best actress. How many does Jessica have? Two. Best One. actress, two. Best actress and also best supporting actress. Do you know okay. for what movies? I haven't the slightest. Ah, gosh, Walter. Okay. Playing the phenomenal new series Feud on FX. Feud. Okay. So Dudu says, what big screen divas are they playing? Dudu says Joan Crawford and Bet Betty Davis. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. Except Susan is playing Betty Davis and Jessica is playing Joan Crawford. You have got to see this series, Walter. It is, it's about the filming of and the feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and when they were filming Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And their portrayals are excellent. And all the Hollywood intrigue at the time and all the – and Hedda Hopper and all the gossip. Oh, it's, it's just great. I am like rivet every Sunday night at 10 o'clock. FX. I am watching this. It's great. Like I said, it's it's my version of Downton Abbey. So, all right. So, Dudu um, will win a prize, but we have to. Dudu's going to have to somehow email us or something information so that we know uh, where to send uh, his prize to. So, Dudu, if you're listening, send us an email to t with bvp uh, at gmail.com, and we will get um, your copy of Dust Storm, Stories from Lubbock. By the way, with all our fans out there, this should be a bestseller. They should all be reading this, Walter. That's right. They should be reading this. How this many is... of you sold on Amazon? Come on, everybody. Go I on don't Amazon. know. I haven't even looked at this that uh, sales yet. But anyway, so yeah, it's really good. I, li I, like, I like my little it's stories. It's just a, it's a pleasurable read. It's not, it has nothing to do with language acquisition. So if you're just looking for something to read, Dust Storm. Okay. Yes. It's great for spring break, getting ready for that summer vacation. You need something for the beach or for the airplane. I think Angelica must be the one who gets people to call in other weeks because, man, we have had so few callers today. I know. And our show is coming to a close here soon. So if you want to get in, call us now, 517-884-4321. Okay. Well, in the meantime, I'm going to do, instead of Angelica's quote of the week, I have a quote here from a handwritten note for us. Wow. Well, it was given to me at Southwest Colt, and I forgot to read this last week. So this is from um, Gina um, uh, from Maui, 
Um, she was at Southwest Cult because Hawaii is part of the Southwest mm-hmm. Cult um, group of states. And I have a confession to make. Well, let me read you the note, and then I'll do the confession. So Jeannie says the following. Gina says the following. Aloha from Maui. Thank you so much, Bill, Angelica, and Walter, for all you do. She underlines all. Your show has been an amazing inspiration, and I feel that it has really changed my teaching and, more importantly, my students' learning. Many mahalos, Gina. Isn't that nice? That's very nice. Now, here's my confession. So, Gina, thank you for that. We like like people. We hope we're helping people, at least getting people to think about things and talk to each other. That's that's important. Because one of the things I think the show does is it, it creates a community, a larger community than just the one you're in. It allows you to interact with people on Mixler, on tweets, um, with us on the show, and so on. Okay, so here's my confession. This came with a present for all of us. I said, what? It was a bag of chocolate macadamia treats. <laughs> and you ate them all. Well, not just me, but, you know, and I, I forgot to bring them in. And then, you know, I would be there stressing it at home in front of my computer and eat one. Or after dinner at night, I'd go, boy, I should go for something sweet. Then I'd eat one. And then I'd come back from working out at the gym. Oh, God, I need some sugar in me. Oh, I'd eat one. Ugh. And next thing you know, Gina, they if were you're gone. listening, I hope that you are hearing Bill's confession here. But Gina, when she gave them to me at Southwest Colt, somebody was standing there and they said, Well, you know, this is not going to make it to Walter and Gallic if you can do Bill here. So <laughs> that, that person knew me. So thank you, Gina. I appreciated the, the, um, the treats, but, we, but all of us appreciate the um, comments. Okie dokie. I would oh. have appreciated some chocolate, but you know, it's okay. Uh, I think we got a phone call coming in. Oh, look at um, that. Yeah, look at that. So um, we have, and we only have like about three minutes left before we have to wrap up. So we better we better take this call. We have uh, Lizette on the line. Is Lizette, are you there on the line, Lizette? Hey, hi again. Hi, hey, Lizette. Lizette. How are you? This I is two weeks in a, row, in a row, right? Yeah, Lizette. I, San I Diego. know. Well, if no one else is calling, I'll call. Well, of course. Um, you know, it would help if you said the number a little more often, I think. If Bill would just give me a chance to have put a word in edgewise here, you know, I'd give the number every five minutes or so. But. I hear <laughs> I hear you. And you, you know, Walter, I'm over 65, so I can give unsolicited advice. And, um, you know, when you snore when Bill is talking, who, who do you think listens to this show? <laughs> People who want to hear all that geeky stuff that he's saying. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I know. I should. Thank be. you, Lizette. I wish you were here in the studio right now. <laughs> I wish I were too. Okay, here's my question. Okay, what's You're your question? Talking. I was a little distracted, but I was listening with one ear about what you were saying about noticing. And that made me think of pop up grammar. So, as a TPRS teacher, we. Did, uh, in, um, undertake to uh, flood our classes with comprehensible input. And at times what we do is what we call pop-up grammar and when we call attention to some of the lexical, I think it's lexical, items that um, occur in the language. For example, like if I said, um, um, uh, mis amigos hablan español. Did you hear that, hablan? What's the difference between hablan and habla? And we call attention to the verb ending. Right. Because it carries meaning. Now, does that help acquisition? Um, we don't know. I, I'm not sure it does. Um, it may. It may not. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't do mm-hmm. anything wrong. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And because it is pop-up and it's in the moment... And it's not taking over your class. It's probably fine. But we don't know what it does in the long run, to be honest with you. We really don't. So. Okay. And it's the kind of thing where at the beginning stages, what I understand is the kids don't even notice that kind of stuff. Right. Right? They, they just go for meaning, and they can't even hear. Well, the they're, they're, but again, those, those things are developmental, so they'll, they come with time. Right. Lizette, i got to cut you off because I'm getting a signal here. We only have like a minute left. I have to do my thank yous. So, okay. Thank you for calling. Thanks for calling, Lizette. 
You're welcome. Bye. Okay. Bye, Lizette. Okay, quick wrap-up because, oh, my God, I'm going to run out of time here. Uh, thank you to our, our technical producer, Daniel Trago, um, our media producer, Luca Giapponi, who's not here. He's a T-Sol, but we thank him anyway. Um, our talented and trusted call handler today was Jen. She's doing a great job. Our wonderful assistant production manager, Jeff, who's been manning the screen. Um, and the College of Arts and Letters at MSU, especially our dean, Christopher Long. Thank you very much, Chris. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And, of course, we thank all of you listeners out there, and we really thank Lizette for calling at the end, don't we, Walter? That's right. That's great. Even if she scolded me. Okay, even if she scolded you. So... (laughs) Don't forget that uh, next week we'll be in Columbus, Ohio for the OFLA, and we'll be broadcasting on Saturday at noon. But until then, have a great weekend, and happy second language acquisition to everyone. Goodbye, everybody. 